If you guys have your Bibles with you this evening, I promise you I'm not checking a text message or anything. Pulling out my timer. Turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We're going to look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. So Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 22. And as you guys are turning to Ephesians 5:22, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you so much for the opportunity that you provided for us to come together and to fellowship with each other, to enjoy each other's company, to be able to have a good time, to throw foil at each other, to uh, worship you in song, to worship you in the reading and the exhortation of your word. So Father, we pray that as we study one of the highest institutions of mankind, one of the greatest gifts outside of salvation that you can give to us and indeed represents salvation, that as we study that, that you would captivate our hearts and our minds by the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and would draw us into deeper communion and fellowship with you through Jesus as a result of what we have for us this evening. We pray that you'd be magnified, that you'd be lifted up, that you'd be exalted, that these kids would hold your name the highest of honor and that they would esteem you and that they would respect you and that they would revere you even more so and that we would all grow to be more like your son Jesus uh, as knowing this information. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each, of you, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." So as I was studying this passage of Scripture, it seemed abundantly evident to me that uh, given what it's presenting, that really what we would do this evening is dismiss everybody in the room, and then we'll have, uh, we'd have Anthony and Natalie if they were here, and then have my wife come forward and all the people that are married, and we'll just do a message to them, because it's obviously talking about marriage. And so what is it that we can glean, what is it that we can learn as a youth group and as individuals that uh, might actually be really far off from marriage? And I don't think there's anybody within this room that actually is married, other than my wife and myself at this point in time. None of the youth kids, I don't think any of you went off and did a secret wedding at any point in time. And you guys are going to like, two of you will come to me, a dude and a chick, and you guys will be like, wow, we've been married for like a year now. It's totally crazy. It's it's insane. And you didn't know. (laughs) Ha ha ha. I don't think any, I don't think that's the case necessarily. But regardless, how is it that we're supposed to approach this text? given the fact that some of us aren't married. Well, I'm sure you may begin to respond, well, that would be good information to know. It would be important to know about marriage if I were ever considering marriage at any point in time in the future. 
So even though I'm not married now, and even though it's addressing wives, those that are currently married, and it's addressing husbands, those that are currently married, that there still could be something that I would gain and that I would benefit in knowing these things, considering that the chances of me being married someday are really, really high. And that would obviously end up at some point in time. So here's how we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. There's a primary way of examining verses 22 through 33 in a way that is very applicable to both those who are married and those who are unmarried. And as well, we could even see that would be applicable in terms of individuals who may be single the rest of their lives, which is perfectly okay, that they can use this kind of information to admonish and encourage individuals who are married. You don't have to be married to say something biblical about marriage. There was a guy one time that I was counseling, confronting more so, who had physically abused his wife. And I walked up to him as a young guy. So number one, this dude's like, you know, got 20 years on me or something like that. And I'm a, I'm a young dude. And so immediately I'm just going to be dismissed as a, as a young guy. And then I also wasn't married at the time. And so I walk up to the guy and I'm sitting there trying to explain to him and encourage him that that's not something that you do as a husband. That is breaking the biblical text that you're commanded to love your wife. You're not loving your wife in this esteem. And uh, he turns to me and he says, you know, what? you don't understand because you're not married. And of course, at which point I said, you're absolutely right. I don't understand. I don't understand any context in which is it okay to hurt your wife. And he quickly moved on to a different topic that was going on there. So you don't have to be somebody who uh, is married in order to encourage somebody else who is married. You just need to know what God's word says about marriage. That's one of the most important things. If you're going to have a right understanding of marriage, you, you need to know what God says on that subject. So with that in mind, when we examine the subject in terms of those that are not married, that may potentially be married someday, and those that are married, there is a primary emphasis that this text specifically has, and indeed is for the unmarried as well as the married. We could summarize what this passage is saying in kind of a simple statement here that really what this passage is doing is encouraging every single one of us to adopt a specific attitude in relationship to marriage. That attitude is something that we could summarize by this phrase, I want my spouse. That's the attitude that this passage of Scripture is teaching. Now you might think to yourself, but I don't have a spouse. That's the point. For those that don't have a spouse, this is going to teach something within your life that is an attitude that you should adopt and it is a very crucial, very important, and very essential attitude to have as a single person that if you're interested in somebody else of the opposite sex, you would have this understanding of saying, I want my spouse. It's a very important concept, and it's very contrary to the world's idea. And we'll explain more so what I mean as we go through our context, but the main thing is that if we see what the world says about romantic relationships and about marriage relationships, is that the world is going to teach you, the world is going to instruct you, that really you need to be looking for somebody that makes you laugh, somebody that makes you feel special, Somebody that is a benefit to your life specifically. And if you really examine what's being said, you'll begin to recognize that it's a very selfish way of looking at relationships. It's all about finding somebody to fulfill me, me, me. They've got to make me laugh. They've got to make me feel special. 
They've got to make me feel like somebody who's a million bucks. They've got to bend to my will. They've got to cave to my desires. They've got to ultimately be there to serve my pleasure. So when they're saying, as far as the world is concerned, that you're going to go out there and you're going to look for a spouse, you're going to look for somebody of the opposite sex to engage in a romantic relationship that ends in marriage, is that you should be looking for somebody who caters to your emotions and who caters to your needs. And it's very you-centered. In fact, you know, you're, you're often hearing the phrase, the expression, you're waiting for Mr. Right. You're waiting for... I don't think people really say Mrs. Right, but that's essentially the same concept. You're, you're waiting for somebody who's right, but it's right in terms of their ability to fulfill your specific desires. Now, of course, is it wrong in a marriage relationship to make your spouse laugh? Of course not. That's, that's a fantastic thing. Is it wrong to make your spouse feel special? Of course not. That's, that's a very important thing that would exist there. Is it, law, is it wrong that if your spouse has a specific desire or specific wants or interests or activities that you would cater to those things? Of course, that's not wrong. The main idea is that your motivation and your primary purpose of marrying somebody is so that they would make you laugh and cater to your desires and to your wants only. Really what we're talking about is that there's a, there's a bar that marriage is set at in Scripture. It's a very high bar. The bar is raised very, very high. The standard of marriage is exceedingly high as how it's represented in Scripture. And the marriage that the world is representing of this, this fairy tale version, this Disney version of happily ever after, you're finding Mr. Right, or you're like Cinderella, and, and really the answer to all of your life circumstances is to find a rich dude, you're the only blonde chick in the kingdom, and you've got to find the rich, powerful prince that can change your life, right? That's, and seriously, like we chuckle and we laugh because it's Disney, and uh, really they, sh- they should rename the earlier cartoon Cinderella to just mice because that's all you get for like 90% of the movie, but anyways, not here to be a film critic. So, you have that mentality, though, that your life circumstances will change as long as somebody comes here to be specifically about your desires and that your wants. So the bar is raised too low. Raised too low. Uh, you know what I mean. The bar is too <laughs> set, set, too <laughs> set too low. You don't. You. Well, I mean, unless if it's on the ground and you kind of raise it up, and then it's too low. Set too low. Okay, we'll go with that. The bar is set too low in the world's estimation of marriage. And so really what we're talking about in this concept of I want my spouse giving that kind of an attitude, receiving that kind of attitude from this text is that we're talking about a better kind of marriage. And that's how the world is going to examine some of those things. So what are we talking about here when we're saying from this passage of Scripture from verse 22 down to verse 33 that we're talking about the subject of wanting your spouse. When we carefully examine the context, what that ultimately means, because you could almost kind of twist the phrase, I want my spouse, to be like what the world is saying. I want somebody who makes me laugh. That's, that's who I want. I want Mr. Right. And you should be finding Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. You should be finding the right person ultimately to marry. But that's not necessarily what the phrase means, I want my spouse, or what this passage is teaching about wanting your spouse specifically. The idea that's being presented within our context is about you being Mr. Right. You being 
Mrs. Wright. That it's you focused and that there's something that needs to happen about you prior to going into a marriage relationship. And that ultimately when you're examining the circumstances that are being presented within our context, what you mean or what you should believe, what you should receive in terms of this attitude is that I want my spouse so that I can fulfill my role to them. So when you, as a woman, are reading this portion of Scripture, hearing this message that as we talk about a a godly man, as we talk about a husband, that you're saying, really, I want my spouse. You're saying, I want to be a godly woman for my spouse someday. I want that spouse. I want that husband that I'm supposed to have. I want that wife that I'm supposed to have so that I can be a strong protector, so I can be a loving husband, so that I can be like Jesus to her. Because again, this goes back to our study on dating, that your idea of going into a romantic relationship is not the fairy tale fulfillment of things. Your idea of going into a romantic relationship is so that you can glorify God. That's your motivation as a Christian. That's your desire as a Christian. Everything that surrounds and penetrates your life pertains to the concept that you want to glorify God. You want to make Him famous. And you guys all know what glory really means. If you're having trouble understanding this concept of the glory of God, you, you really do know what it means. It's in that football game when somebody scores the winning touchdown and there's a celebration and there is a glory that exists when that person did something awesome and it's worthy of commendation. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of admiration. In fact, even people would develop role models off of somebody in a sports arena that does something amazing. It's worthy of praise. That's glory. Celebration is the idea of glory, where there's something that is so immeasurably awesome that you cannot help but cry out in admiration and praise of something. And you know that you see the reaction, right? You've been to football games, you've been to basketball games, you know these things, soccer games as well. I've got to throw us soccer players in that mix, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was way too much excitement over soccer. That doesn't happen. The ex- that doesn't happen. But you know what happens when somebody scores the winning touchdown, when they, when they shoot the winning goal, when they, when they do whatever is necessary to do something amazing and you see the crowd go crazy over it, raising up their hands in excitement, jumping up and down, knocking somebody over because you're so stoked about what just happened. You know what this celebration is like. That's glory. And it's a shame that We know how to get excited for those things, but we don't necessarily do the same thing in the forgiveness of sins, which causes the glory of Christ. He has accomplished your salvation. He has died to save you. And yet hearing that is such a cliche thing these days. It's just such a mundane, routine thing to hear some guy telling you that Jesus died for your sins and has borne the wrath of God so that you can experience the joy and the bliss of heaven and God for eternity. And it's not as exciting. But the Christian who truly understands what it is that they have in Christ recognize that the glory of the Lord, which also means the famousness of God, making Him known, displaying Him, and having His reputation, and having Him be known, is so much better than your reputation or having you be known. 
So you live for the glory of God. You live for the celebration of Christ. You live for the amazing reactions that would take place to the gospel message in your life. That's the reason why you date. That's the reason why you would even get married. When that's the foundation, and you go into Ephesians 5, 22-33, and you see an outline... Ladies, you see an outline of how it is that you can be a godly wife. You should rejoice with excitement of recognizing that in the marriage relationship, you've got a template that Christ gives to you through the Apostle Paul that says, here's how you can glorify God. So when you hear that, that's when you would say, I want my spouse. Gentlemen, when you see that, when you hear that, when you see the template of how it is to, to display Jesus, as our text is telling us, to be Christ to your wife, that you would say, I want my wife, the very same way that Jesus would have said, I want my church. And that he stepped into creation to purchase his bride from the muck and the mire and the ruin and the misery of sin and bring her into an eternal relationship with himself. You want to say, I want to display that. I want to demonstrate that I want my spouse because really ultimately what you're saying with that phrase is I want more than anything to glorify God and of course again you know it's always important to address the idea that if if singleness is your is your lot in life if that's what you're going to pursue there is absolutely nothing wrong with that because you're saying to yourself I don't want a distraction necessarily. I don't want to I want to be totally freed up specifically to focus on kingdom advancement. I want to focus on the gospel and spreading it to other people's lives and that's commendable and for those people you can say I want to glorify Christ as well. But given our context we're specifically addressing the idea of romantic relationships that we would want and so in that respect you would say I want my spouse you're ultimately saying I want the glory of Christ. So prior to marriage there is a specific attitude in approaching this text and saying, I want my spouse, and that ultimately that would mean I don't want just anybody because I can't be this way to just anybody. I can't glorify God to just anybody and that gives us the perception if we're talking about just having anybody that we can get into a relationship with somebody and it doesn't really matter that relationship can end and then I'll just move on to somebody else. No, the attitude that we're embracing by what this passage is saying because it is exalting and elevating marriage to such a wonderful ability to glorify God that you're saying, I want my spouse because I want to do these things for my spouse. Ultimately, I want to do these things for God and to glorify and bring honor to His name. But prior to that, prior to being in the position of being married, then there is plenty within this portion of Scripture that really gives a sufficient guideline and a sufficient guide in the wilderness to bringing you to this point of being able to have your spouse. And so you're really looking for somebody who you can be this way for and prior to marriage, you would be looking for somebody who would be this way for you as well. So if you're a lady, you'd be looking at any particular 
situation with guys that you know, and you'd be looking and asking yourself the question, is this guy somebody who can love me the way Christ loves me? And you have to really come to terms with the fact it does not matter how much you feel for him or how studly the dude is, how many pounds of weight he can bench press, how many veins are like popping out of his bulky arms. You can tell I'm not a candidate here. I'm lucky looking at myself going, oh man, I'm so puny. Not to say that looks or attraction is not something to take into consideration because even if you find somebody that can ultimately fulfill these things and you're not experiencing an attraction, there's nothing necessarily wrong with saying, well, I'm not attracted to this person though. There is such a thing as preference that can exist within the body of Christ. And if there's not an attraction and you're not preferring somebody, then there is nothing that is absolutely wrong with saying, I'm not going to pursue a relationship with that person. And it's not something that to be offensive. And by the way, don't throw these lines around. The Holy Spirit doesn't want me to marry this person. Wow. Like the Holy Spirit would look at another Christian and like be like, no. <laughs> You don't want that dude. <laughs> yeah, he's saved. He's got some pretty sound theology, but <laughs> it's a good thing you prayed about this because, whoo, I saved you a lot of trouble with this Christian. Yikes. Don't use the Holy Spirit as a scapegoat for your preference. It is perfectly okay. There is nothing wrong with saying, I just genuinely don't have an attraction. It's perfectly there. If you're a guy and you're in a relationship with a friendship with a girl and one thing that you can begin to ask yourself, and of course we're going to go through all kinds of criteria from our context here, but is this woman, is this girl going to follow me the way that she follows Christ? And how would you know some of these things? How would you begin to answer some of these questions? And how would you begin to, from our context, begin to understand how it is that you should approach a relationship with another guy or another girl? One thing very specifically is you can determine a lot about an individual by looking at their relationship with Christ. Do they have affection towards Christ? Do they have an excitement about Christ? Do they, do they have a consistency in Christ? Do they constantly, in some way, shape, or form, participate in worship of Christ? And you have to recognize worship is far beyond just singing songs. That's a very good expression of worship, but worship goes beyond that to service, to your attitude. Yes, you are not worshiping God if you have a bad attitude about Him. Does this person worship God? Do they read the Word of God and do they have a healthy esteem and a healthy respect for what God says. I mean, think about that in terms of like an Old Testament prophet. They come on the scene, they're speaking the words of God, they're saying, thus saith the Lord, and you've got a guy and you've got a girl sitting here, and the girl's sitting there just like wide-eyed and mystified that God is speaking to them, and the guy is standing there going, hmm, well, that's neat. Somebody who doesn't esteem the Word of God, who's not excited about the fact that God is speaking, and the very Bibles that you're holding in your hand are the words of God. You are, every time you open up the Scriptures, standing in the presence of God as He is speaking to you. Does this person show some indifference towards that? And then, of course, you recognize the context that we've been in 
That's a very fantastic way to begin to examine if this person is somebody who can fulfill these biblical commands and that you can be this biblical towards. Is this person putting off the old them and then putting on the new them? Is this somebody who is specifically engaging in activity to where the sinful them is decreasing and the righteous them, which is ultimately the righteousness of Christ, is increasing? Is this somebody who could really say about their lives that I have been crucified with Christ? In other words, the old me is dead. Galatians 2.20 He is dead. She is dead. That person that I used to live as That person is dead, and now it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The person that you are interested in pursuing for a romantic relationship, do they, can you find Christ in their lives? Which may be a very difficult question to answer if we have difficulty recognizing Jesus. If we haven't put forth the time and the effort to learn more and more about Christ as how he's revealed himself in Scripture. So in other words, are they participating in repentance? Is there sin within their life that they have, that they have a hard time to nearly no time uh, getting rid of? Is there a constant, consistent participation and practice of sin that they're becoming better and better at sin? We looked in our context previously of the idea of not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is this somebody who gets drunk seriously? Is this somebody who gets drunk? It's not attractive. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable to participate within them because you are resisting. You are grieving the Holy Spirit by doing so. Shouldn't be anything fun about that, and there shouldn't be anything attractive about that, because especially if they're getting drunk with wine, they are demonstrating there's at least moments, if not the totality of their life, where they're not in control. The Holy Spirit's not governing their life. And so, what in the world makes you think that engaging in a relationship with somebody who drinks and gets drunk, that they're going to be able to control themselves with you? prior to marriage and even after marriage. In fact, do they control their speech as well? James 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Is this somebody that can't control their speech? They're just saying things flippantly. They're in a gathering together and cuss words just happen to fly out. Is this somebody who can control what they say? Because if they're not controlling... Is this somebody who like says things inappropriately to you? Because if this person cannot control the things that they say, they won't be able to control themselves around you. And you're getting two sinners together in a situation where emotions can start to play a factor and attraction can start to grow. And when you get those things involved and you don't have the ability to control yourself, you're going to sin. You're going to sin. And of course, even further back in our context, when we talked about the idea that pointless things produce sin, do they want to do just pointless things with you all the time? Or do they already engage in pointless activities? Constantly just wasting their time. Constantly wasting their time. And they want to, they want to have you join them in wasting time. Not talking about video games specifically, but there was a guy that I had seen on YouTube, and of course this is where you derive all your truth and illustrations from is YouTube. And so I was watching this video. And this guy was a professional gamer, which I'm not knocking that either. You can go and make some money. If you can make money playing video games and putting them ups on the internet, you should probably do that. 
but this guy was doing this, and his girlfriend was sitting on the couch just watching him play video games like eight hours a day as he was practicing and training and all those kinds of different things. Again, not bashing video gamers, but just simply saying, this is what happened. And I'm sitting there, and this chick's just like watching them and just all bored. And I'm like, that, uh, off button. Hello, human. I mean, seriously. Real, virtual, real, virtual, real, virtual. You guys picking up what I'm laying down here? You guys smelling what I'm stepping in? You guys painting what I'm priming? You guys hitting what I'm pitching? Follow along here. There's some reality that exists in this world. It's not wrong to enjoy it every once in a while. There's a pointless thing. Constantly being together in pointless activity, there is no possible way to ever arrive at anything that glorifies God in participating in pointless activities together. Now again, as I've said before, in terms of like video games, shopping, going to the mall... Uh, all these different things, find the way in which you're glorifying God in those things. Figure out how to glorify God by doing those things. Do they rebel against authorities? I remember in high school, wasn't that long ago, but it was always cool to mouth off to teachers. That's how you know somebody was cool. It's always cool to mouth off to parents or to be together and you sit there and you complain about each other's parents. My, my dad just does not get it. As if me after, you know, like 12 years on this earth and my dad 40 years on this earth, he doesn't get it. I do. Totally a wise individual because I got all this accumulation of knowledge and wisdom and experience and you get the point. Rebelling against authorities. Does this, this person demonstrate? In fact, it's even a biblical concept. It is a Christian concept to submit to governments. In as much as it doesn't cause you to uh, abandon Christian principles. So there are ways of actually rebelling against governments. But insofar as you are not sinning by submitting to a government authority, you need to be submitting. The Bible also says to submit to the authority of every institution. Every institution. Anybody who has an authority or a position over you. In fact, even walking into a store, that's a human institution and there's an authority that they specifically have. And so don't go in there and, and try to like mess with like managers or people like that. There's, a, there's an authority that still exists. If you get a job and you're working for a manager, there's a submission that needs to take place there as well. Any human institution, in which case there is an authority over you, be in submission to insofar as it doesn't cause you to walk away from your Christianity. In our context as well, do they contribute to the spiritual well-being of a church through ministry of some kind? He's given apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. If this person is a Christian, it doesn't matter if they're going to your church or not. If this person is a Christian, by definition of being a saint, there is ministry of some kind that they need to be doing. And it could be something as simple as you saying to yourself, well, really what my ministry is, is I try to go to people within the church that look like they're down and I try to encourage them with the gospel. That's ministry. And are, are they even somebody who thinks about those kinds of things? It doesn't have to be that they get into an established ministry, that they get into a, an officially named ministry in order to serve. But imagine an individual that thinks to themselves, how is it that I can personally contribute? And then I'll start doing that. 
Are they even creative enough and spiritual enough to think about how it is that they can specifically minister within the church? And as long as they're in submission to their leadership and they're not trying to rock against that local congregation and they're ministering to the people within the church, is this something that's taking place within their lives? Important things to keep in mind before just diving headlong into a relationship and maybe getting to a point where you've been in a committed relationship with somebody and you realize that it's not going to happen, it's not going to work, and now you both have to endure heartache. And not to say that that couldn't be unavoidable in certain circumstances. Somebody can present themselves. Somebody can show themselves to be very spiritual, to be very awesome, to be an amazing Christian, to be a wonderful and, and the right kind of a spouse, and then maybe even a year down the road, they flip into a 180 and they show you who the real you, who the real them actually is. And in which case, there there needs to be an abandonment sometimes. But I think there's due diligence that we as Christians can have that before we engage in these circumstances, and and in fact, perhaps we should even be scrutinizing to the degree in which we are missing out on relationships, even if other people in the youth group have relationships, all because we've adopted an attitude, I want my spouse. I'm not going to settle for anything less. I want my spouse. I want somebody that I can glorify the Lord with. And you can see how this applies even in a marriage. Because you're saying there's an exclusivity that exists in my relationship. I want my spouse so that I can exhibit these things. And I don't want to go outside of the covenant of marriage to try to find out if there's any kind of enjoyment or fulfillment because this is the highest degree of relationship. Seeking outside this kind of relationship for what this relationship can only fulfill, which would be idolatry at that point, is going to incur disappointment. Asking some of these questions is important. Finding out some of these information, doing the due diligence to see if these things exist is an exceptionally important quality within our lives. Ladies, in relationship to an individual, does he exhibit qualities of giving himself up for the betterment of somebody else? You meet a guy... He's a stud. I've like totally, there's like a separation of like ugly people are over here. Studs are over here, right? It's not even a consideration. You meet a guy, we'll just say that. You meet a guy, he's a nice guy, he's a great guy, whatever it is. And you're talking with him, you're examining his life. You've done the diligence of accepting the attitude of saying, well, I want my spouse. Is this somebody who can be my spouse? And you start asking yourself the question, does he exhibit qualities of giving himself up for the betterment of somebody else? And here's a specific way of recognizing this. Is this somebody who is willing to sacrifice his time? There's a lot that you can understand about a guy by seeing how he spends his time. And if he is willing to give up his time for the betterment of somebody else. Classic example, again, not picking on video games, but is this individual that would prefer video games over church night or Sunday morning? Is this a person who would prefer sports on Sundays over church? Is this a person who would prefer sports, uh, watching sports is specifically what I'm talking about here, who would prefer watching sports over preaching the gospel at, a, at an outreach or something of that effect? 
Is he willing to give up his time? True biblical manhood, a true biblical husband, is somebody who is willing to halt his life to respond to you. And if you find that in a man, he's ready for marriage. When you say his name, when you text him, when you talk to him, he is somebody that drops what he's doing to pay attention to you. Because that's what he should be doing in marriage. Doesn't matter how important his job is, doesn't matter how important whatever he is is doing. He's out with the buddies and he's golfing. It could happen. And you send him a text message and you say, Hey, just wanted to talk to you about something. And even if it's not what we would maybe consider as super important to interrupt, but it's something that's very important. And he says, Hold on, guys, mid swing, hold on. Let me see. And that's his wife. He says, Give me a second, guys. I need to pay attention to what my wife is saying. And if it's insignificant, then he has a very wonderful opportunity to say, Sweetheart, it's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll deal with this later. And she's got the reassurance of knowing that her husband is contactable. You know what's strange is the fact that in our context, it specifically relates to the idea that men are supposed to represent Christ who is God, and God said of his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If that's the attitude of a man for his wife, and that's the attitude that this man is saying he will exhibit towards his wife and is demonstrating this because he's willing to halt his time for something that's important, then that's a person who will say to you, though he's saying something different in his marriage vows, what he's really saying when he is promising to marry you ladies is, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you because I want to glorify God by loving you. Here's another way examining how this guy treats other sisters in Christ. Is he rude to ladies? Is he rude to women in general? And then here's the big crux and maybe one of the most convicting things for us guys if we're not being great kids to our parents. How does this man, how does this guy treat his mother? Because she's somebody that he is most comfortable around. He lives with her. He's used to her. And he's used to being himself with her. Does he snap at her? Does he yell at her? Does he disregard her? Those are the very same things that most likely he would do towards you in a marriage. Men, and this might sound abundantly strange, but hear me out. You meet a girl, just like the previous section and addressing the ladies, and you'll notice our text starts ladies, and then it starts guys, then it kind of summarizes both. That's sort of the outline within our context here. And guys, you met a girl. She's, she seems like a pretty legit girl. Uh, you're at least attracted to her no matter what. And so it may sound strange, but one of the greatest ways of knowing if this is the right kind of a woman and knowing more specifically that she would respect you and submit to you in marriage the greatest way of determining this, one of the greatest ways of knowing if a woman will submit completely to you in marriage is if she resists you now. And I don't mean that you walk up to her and she like totally snubs her nose at you and is like, whatever it is, homie. 
That's not talking specifically about that. But a woman that resists you, you try to hold her hand, and she goes, I don't know you, dude. Chill out, bro. We're watching the Lego movie. (laughs) And then, of course, ultimately resists you in if you're wanting to advance even further. Of course, you shouldn't have that attitude in the first place. But as you're exhibiting this kind of interaction with this woman and she is not willing to just dive right in, but she's resistant of you, nor is she willing to just simply follow along with whatever it is that you're saying. Hey, we should go do this. No, I don't want to do that. Again, there's something that to be said about you needing to be a spiritual godly man so that you're not putting her in positions where she should have to resist you. But ultimately, if she is more concerned about submitting to her father or submitting to the eldership of her church, or ultimately that she is more concerned about submitting to the word of God and she doesn't consider you to be a spiritual head yet, this is a very fantastic example and expression of somebody to be pursuing. Is she currently in submission to the word of God? Because if she is concerned about obeying scripture, then when you are married, she will continue to obey scripture and then will submit to you. In marriage, a biblical wife is going to be somebody who loves Christ so much she can't help but to esteem her husband who is a picture of Christ. And whether he's living that way or not, because there's going to be plenty of times, ladies and and gentlemen, when you get into a relationship with with your spouse, when you're finally married, and she's not going to be the epitome of submission, and he's not going to be the epitome of Christ, and you guys are ticking each other off and conflicting the way that sinful people do. And that's not your motivation. Your motivation is the very fact that you love Christ so much that this guy is somebody that is a picture of Jesus, whether he's acting like it or not, and you respect God so much, you respect Christ so much that you will continue to respect even a husband who doesn't deserve it. So men, when you're examining this, is this a woman who esteems Christ so much? Does she exalt Christ so much? Does she submit to Christ so much? Her real husband... Now, ladies, when you're examining this concept, I want my spouse, it would ultimately begin to look like this. You need to be androphobic. Androphobic. Not arachnophobic. I'm not saying, although that does exist within marriages where the wife is like freaked out at a spider and dudes, you got to step in no matter how creepy they are. It, It don't matter how big those legs are, how fast that sucker is moving you got to step up and be William Wallace or Hercules or somebody and straight up chop that spider's head off. I'm telling you, marriage is hard. <laughs> now, androphobic, you know, if you're arachnophobic, you want to step on a spider. If you're androphobic, you don't want to step on your husband. The idea is andros is the Greek word for husband. Phobic is the Greek word for fear. There needs to be a respect defined as what is normally used in the scripture as the word phabos, the word fear, which carries with it the idea of reverence, carries with it the idea of honor, of esteem, of respect. Notice 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, 
This is how they used to look pretty. By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now that's a very important distinction there, right? Spiders are over here that are frightening. Don't fear those, even though chicks probably will, and some husbands. Don't judge me. I'm serious. I said, don't judge me. That means don't laugh at me. Okay, so don't fear that which is frightening. And whenever the Bible talks about fear, it's usually this way. There's a don't fear and there's a do fear. There's a do fear the Lord. There's a don't fear everything else. Which means whenever that exists, it's not to say that you see God and you terror, you're terrified and you want to run away from Him. It's that when you see God, your attention is so firmly fixed upon Him and that you are raising Him up and exalting and elevating Him up with such high esteem that you lack the concern for something else. You're stuck in the middle of the woods. That grizzly bear is charging you. you got no hope. You probably don't care about the fact that you left the iron on at home. You're not afraid of burning down your house. You're afraid of getting your head bit off. Don't fear that which is frightening. And in fact, do fear your husbands, but not in the sense that maybe some guys who try to physically abuse or verbally abuse their wives are trying to get them to fear them. Fear them as if they are Christ. Esteem them. Respect them. Think highly of them. After all, you thought they were so wonderful that you went into a relationship where you said, I do. How crazy is that in verse 6? And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him kurios, calling him Lord, calling him Master, calling him Sir. Of course, here it comes. All the dudes are going to be like, what it is, I'm a Master. (laughs) Don't lord it over them. But amazing how lost that that is, that this woman who, if you examine her life, she totally wasn't enslaved to Abraham. They had a pretty free relationship with each other. There wasn't a domineering, and yet she obeys him, calls him Lord. And in fact, you're a child of Sarah if you do good and you don't fear what is frightening, but instead your respect and your esteem is within your husband. You're not wallowing in fear, but you're rejoicing in honor and respect of your husband. And there is supposed to be, in this sense, when fear is here, this is, a, this is an emotion, by the way. Your emotions, and the, the fear and don't fear sections, your emotions are firmly grounded in the bedrock of something else so that outside of that, you're not experiencing the chaos of your emotions. Your emotions are firmly grounded in the bedrock of your husband. He is the object of your emotions. Specifically here, your respect and your reverence. And it shows that there would be so much an extreme regard for your husband that you're able to avoid a regard for anything else that would be anxious or frightening. The degree in which you value and respect and submit to your husband is directly related to your value and respect of Christ. You could begin to determine a lot about a woman's relationship to Christ by how she treats her husband. 
then you can begin to get a, a picture of what submission actually is. It's the attitude in which a woman values and esteems her husband, whether or not he deserves it. And it's in every area, but it's also as unto the Lord, you don't submit to your husband's sin. Ever. Submission means respect. It means you admire your husband. You admire his qualities. You admire his abilities. You admire his achievements. You show concern for and regard for his feelings, his wishes, his desires, his rights, and his traditions. You're saying that the things that he does, if he hops on a motorcycle and tours around the country, you, you respect that. You think that's cool. You avoid harming or interfering with your husband in all areas. You don't want anything other than to see your husband succeed and to thrive. So you want to do what is necessary and keep this in mind. You are God's divine antidote to his insufficiency. You are how he can help, how, how he can thrive and how he can, and how he can uh, catapult into greater areas of his life. You are a great thing for this guy. Don't contribute to harming him. And one of the best ways to harm a husband, you want to know the secret to how to harm a husband? Be discouraging. Be critical. Say negative things. And that's how you could begin to harm your husband. A woman who specifically focuses on, I know our time is short, but if you'll pay, if you'll just give me a second here, I've got like 20, 10 more pages to get through and we can get through it here pretty quickly. <laughs> There's no Lego movie. We decided to talk about marriage the whole night. <laughs> this is why it takes forever to get through a message. A bunch of jokesters. A woman who specifically commits to never saying anything negative about her husband is a woman who gets it. She gets it. Oh, man. I think we'll have to conclude there this evening. We're already kind of well over our time. We'll pick up with the guys next week, uh, focusing more on some specifics there. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you and we magnify your name and we are just so blessed and honored uh, by your presentation of marriage. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to instruct us and guide us to love your glory, to honor your name, and to glorify you even in the area of marriage, the area of marriage. And I pray, Father, that you would enable the women, you would enable the men to truly understand their roles and to grant them that desire of wanting their spouse so that that way they can fulfill their God-given and commanded role and be able to glorify you. And we praise you and we honor you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.